I have some, uh, I don't know, it's good news, but it's going to sound like bad news. At least I hope it sounds like bad news. Good news, I hope it sounds like bad news. Time is running out on your marriage. It's good news, it sounds like bad, okay, I don't know. Hopefully it sounds like bad news. But I don't mean it is because your spouse is going to die anytime soon. At least, Lord willing, I sure hope not. And I don't mean it's because your marriage is going to end in divorce. Jesus in Mark 12, verse 25 says, he's talking about the resurrection from, from, from the dead. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in, he in heaven. Marriage is not eternal. In God's plan, marriage is tied to this passing away creation. An aspect of your relationship with your spouse, spouse has an expiration date. Your marriage is for this creation only. So time is running out. And because time is running out, marriage presents a unique opportunity, but it's a temporary one. We've been reading in 1 Peter 2, 9, some of God's purposes for why he saved us. 1 Peter 2, 9, we saw how God makes us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The way we fulfill our roles within marriage is a testimony to the transforming power of him who calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, verse 12, talks about more of our purpose as strangers as pilgrims, as aliens in this life. It says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Excellent as determined by God, not by the Gentiles. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The way we fulfill our marriage roles, our roles as husbands and wives, is a part of the excellent behavior, the good deeds, which cause a lost world to be fascinated with what they're seeing unfold before them and say, what is different about you? Husbands, why do you love your wives that way? Wives, why do you submit to your husbands? And so that we can say the good news so that they can become God's worshipers on the day of visitation. This is part of the purpose of this temporary union that husbands and wives have. Last time we were in 1 Peter, we began to see what excellent behavior looks like within marriage. And specifically, we looked at a wife's submission to her husband. I know that even saying that, if you're a visitor today, can sound very strange, very outdated, like we hate women here, very chauvinistic and proud, like somehow men are better at managing a home. That this is a charged and unpopular topic. There's probably really in today's world not many more topics that the Bible clearly teaches that could be more unpopular to not just the lost world, but the Christian world. But the Lord Jesus Christ is not captive to culture. 
And we must do what he says if he is our Lord. Brothers and sisters, the glory of Christ is more important than our comfort. And his power is more important than our, our being popular with the world. Wives, the glory of the power of Christ is displayed as you submit to your husbands. And that's what, at stake, what is at stake today, the glory of the power of Christ. Learning to submit to your husbands is going to require supernatural strength as the curse of the garden is overturned in this temporary marriage. We're going to read from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. And I believe, by God's grace, as we look at the, what God calls husbands to do in 1 Peter 3, 7 next week, you'll see why God, in God's providence, spends more time about the wives' call to submit in verses 1 through 6, and then follows it up with this one really hard verse in verse 7. And I think that that will make more sense to you. God is not being unfair. So 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Let's pray for lots of wisdom and ears to hear. Uh, Father, we thank you for caring so much about your own glory. Because if you uh, cared about anything less, you would not be holy. Your holiness is exalting what is most valuable. And what's most valuable in the universe is your glory. And so we thank you for exalting your glory in showing how we are to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what you have preserved for us here is essential. It is, it is about your glory in your church. And so, Father, we pray for lots of wisdom as we unpack what it means for wives to be submissive and how, uh, what you value as beautiful Lord, what demonstrates salvation? Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you protect me from saying anything that would be offensive that doesn't need to be. Lord, I pray that your son would be exalted as, as supreme. I pray, Father, that there would be lots of hope in this message as we see what Jesus Christ can, can do. We do pray, Father, that you would uh, help us uh, among us who are husbands and uh, who are desire to be husbands, that we would be humbled as well listening to this. Lord, the high calling you've given our wives and that you would be preparing us for our own high calling next week. Give us 
ears that are, are eager to hear, and we can't do any of this apart from uh, the, your grace in your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. From 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, we'll see four aspects of a wife's submission. We'll see four aspects of a wife's submission so that wives will not fear what Christ enables them to do and the good that God highly values. We're going to see four aspects of a wife's, of a wife's submission so that as they do it, we'll see Christ's power, what Christ empowers, and what our good God highly values. So this morning, we're going to look at aspects three and four. We looked at the first two in our first message from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and, and 2. If you missed it, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Really, I'm building upon it. And, and while I'm going to do some, some review here, I know it'll feel a, a little awkward if you haven't heard the first part, but I'm going to try to, to review to get up to speed at anyone who wasn't here. So let's look at that first point in, in, in review from last week. A wife's submission is, is commanded. A wife's submission is commanded. We see that in the beginning of verse 1. In the same way, and not saying in the same way a slave submits to his master, but in the same realm of authority relationships. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. It's not to all men, it is to, to their husbands. And to review, submission means to get in line under someone else, to arrange yourself and to do so willingly. To put yourself behind someone else. It includes doing the will of another. Now, submission does not necessitate, it doesn't mean that you're not involved in decision making or you're not giving input. And there's no support here in the text for a husband forcing his wife to submit to him. Now, he can call his wife to submit to him in obedience to God's word. He can urge his brothers and sisters to help in that even. But there's no forcing a wife to, to submit. And of course, submission is never against God's commands in Scripture. You would never disobey God to obey your husband. And as we reviewed last week, submission doesn't include it doesn't mean unequal in importance or unequal in honor or unequal in dignity. Submission doesn't imply inferiority in any way. And we saw this last week in our resurrection message from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are equal. They have the same attributes. They are sovereign. They are righteous. They are equal in nature, but different in person, different in role. We saw that the son submits to the father. So a wife's submission is, is, is commanded to her husband. Our second aspect we, we looked at last time was a wife's submission displays the transforming power of Jesus Christ. 
We see this in verses 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if, and he's going to say even if, it's, it's not that all of them are, but even if any of them are disobedient to the word, and it doesn't mean that they're not living in a close walk with the Lord, uh, disobedient to the word shows that they have not submitted to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not in a right relationship with the Lord. If they are not saved, even if they are not saved, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And that doesn't mean that the wife has never shared the gospel with them, but that she doesn't badger her husband with the gospel, doesn't keep needling him with the gospel, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they see, and he describes what this conduct is, this chaste and respectful behavior. Chaste just doesn't mean, mean sexually pure, although it includes that. It, it, it is a blameless, undefiled life, a beautiful life lived in authority with God's commands. And this respectful would, would be better translated into fear. And that doesn't mean in fear of their husbands, in fear of, of being beaten, it's talking about in fear of God the Father. Not the kind of fear that leaves you shaking, but the kind of fear that is aware that God is watching. And since I have union with the Lord Jesus Christ, he wants me to act in an obedient way. And he's going to give me the strength to obey. He's going to reward my obedience, but he also will discipline me so that I do obey. Peter describes how and he doesn't promise it, but that these, the, if there are unbelieving husbands, that they may be won by the pure, respectful behavior of their submissive wives. Last week I said that pure, submissive behavior out of fear of God testifies to the power of the gospel. It is an apologetic to the gospel, an evidence that Jesus Christ truly transforms and saves. All right, the uh, third aspect we're going to look at this week is a wife's submission is beautiful and valuable to God. A wife's submission is beautiful and valuable to God. And some have taken this verse in, 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 in too literal a way as we look at verse 3. It says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. Now, that phrase, putting on dresses there, it, it's literally putting on clothing. So this shows that we got to be careful not taking this verse in too literal of a way. God, Peter's not commanding the not putting on of clothing, right? That would be a major problem. So for this reason, the New American Standard Bible adds the word merely. Your adornment must not be merely external. That that word merely isn't there, but they want to make really clear that, that, that this is just not a, a literal command here against any braiding of the hair or against any wearing jewelry or against any putting on of clothes. Peter's focus is on the extravagance of resources, on the expenditure of time and money and energy that went into went into appearance. One commentator uh, describes how uh, the, the hairstyles of, of, of women then could 
It could, it, it was, uh, so, so, so one person said, an, an ancient author says, so important is the business of beautification. So numerous are the tears and the stories piled one upon a, another on her head. There was these elaborate systems of braids. So you can think of a multi-tiered tower, a, 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 a ziggurat uh, that was being made on women's heads. So Peter's concerned about the extravagant use of, of, of resources and the expenditure of time and money that's going into this. But Peter's not only concerned about the external extravagance, he's concerned about the internal, internal motivation. And he doesn't say what that motivation could be. What would bring women to spend so much time? And you women have asked these questions. Peter doesn't say whether it is a desire to impress or perhaps a desire to, to seduce. To turn the heads of men, getting someone's attention by dressing in a flashy way. Or maybe it is to look better than other women. To garner the praise for how beautiful their appearance is. Or even perhaps trying to win back a husband's adulterous eye by dressing in a certain way. So wives, how much hope are you placing in what you see in the mirror? What value are you putting on the praise of others? I think a great question about the amount of time we spend. Are you seeking to bless others or to exalt yourself? Are you seeking to bless others or to exalt yourself? What are you trusting to lead to your happiness? Is it your own smile at what you see when you look in, in the mirror? As if you looked a certain way, that would make you happy? Or maybe it is hoping in another smile. Or are you hoping in the smile of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is pleased with the amount of time you spend on appearance and dressing? There is a similar command to this in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to, 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 God, to godliness. Now, though Peter is, is specifically addressing women, the principle applies to men as well. What hope are you men placing in your appearance? Does how you use your resources communicate that the external is more valuable than the internal? That might apply to the cars that we drive or how we work out. Does how you use your resources show that good looks are more important than good works? And this is not really being in judgment on any choice from any one of you. I have to ask myself these same questions. Are you taking your lead from Christ or from the world when it comes to what your priorities are? Are you concerned about the outer man or the inner man? The praise of men or the praise of God? See, our time and our energy and our money show that we must value something more. I mean, how we spend it show what we value and what we should value more. How we use our resources, we should value 
Peter continues in verse 3. Your adornment must not be the merely external, the braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. It's not about how we look, but who we are. And it's not that how we look doesn't matter. It does. Peter was just telling us what not to do. But what, what, what matters, what we should be cultivating is our internal, who we are. The hidden person of the heart doesn't stay hidden. It is revealed through our responses, especially when we are called to submit to our spouses here in this context. Peter describes Submission as the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. The imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle in, in, in the Greek lexicon. It's not overly impressed by one's self-importance. Also gentle, humble, considerate, meek. It's unassuming. Not demanding one's way. Not confident that we deserve better. It's not pushing for what we think we should get. Now, this is not just a description of how women should be. It's men as well. Matthew 5, 5. And I read this earlier. Blessed are the gentle, the humble, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The gentle, the, the, the one who's not obsessed with what they deserve about getting their way. Jesus describes himself this way. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Being gentle, having this, this, the, the, this meekness, requires trusting God's will and trusting his timeline, trusting that the Lord knows best. Quiet. Now, quiet just doesn't mean not saying any words. Although it can't. It means peaceful and well-ordered. Someone who is not disturbed. We see this, the same phrase of, of all the saints, the same word in 1 Timothy 2.2. 2, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and, and, and dignity. So that this is something that should characterize all saints. The opposite of, of, of this quietness is being nervous, panicked, freaking out, disturbed. We could express this quietness either by lack of being agitated, but also by saying little. It's, again, it's a trusting response. We see that all saints are called to this kind of attitude in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And it, and it doesn't just mean an undisturbed life, a, a, a resting life, a not freaking out kind of life. And, and attend to your own business and work with your hands. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Peter says that a gentle and quiet spirit is imperishable. It's a favorite word of Peter. We already saw that in 1 Peter 1 verse 4 and verse 1, uh, chapter 1 verse 23. It's, it's, it's something that will never rot. Something that is eternal. In contrast to the shoes we buy, the nails we manicure, the dresses we purchase, a gentle and quiet spirit is of eternal value. So this phrase here, a gentle and quiet spirit, gives us insight into the kind of 
submission that Peter's talking about. See, willing, willing submission is grounded in the believer's confidence in the goodness of God. Willing submission is grounded in the believer's confidence of the goodness of God. In believing in ultimate outcomes. And not only our immediate concerns. See, when you trust God, you can be gentle. And trusting your, your treatment and entrusting your concerns about what you feel you deserve to him. You, you, you can believe that God, because God is good, you don't have to get your way. From small decisions to big ones. When you trust God, you can be quiet, not panicking about what might happen, not fighting for what you think is best. And we'll talk about this more. Hopefully a wise husband is getting input from his wife. But when the Lord is in charge, a wife can trust the Lord. She can have that gentle and quiet spirit. Just as we all can, both of those words are, are words that characterize all saints when we trust the Lord. Wives, when your confidence is the Lord's perfect reign, you're able to submit to your husband's imperfect lead with a gentle and quiet spirit. And it will be imperfect. This kind of submission is valuable. It is valuable and beautiful to God. It says it is precious in the sight of God at the end of verse 4. See, God's appraisal is what matters. To God, a, a gentle and quiet spirit is something that is expensive. It's the Gucci bag of attributes. It's a, I don't know how many carat diamond. It's a big one. It's a rock. It's lavish. It's extravagant. See, a gentle and quiet spirit wins God's beauty contest every time. A gentle and quiet spirit is characteristic of God's own beautiful son with whom he is well pleased. And God puts a high price tag on this gentle and quiet spirit. It can't be bought at South Coast Plaza where $1.5 billion is spent every year, I found out. A gentle and quiet spirit is too costly. It can only be bought with the precious blood of Christ. This is the only way you can have this gentle and quiet spirit. Wives, where are you looking for your value from? Are you trying to get your value from compliments and second glances, from doing everything exactly as your husband says? And not that that means that that's a bad thing. But even your value is not keeping your husband perfectly happy. If your husband's like me, he's never perfectly happy. Right? Your value can't be in that, and it can't be in compliments, it can't be in second glances. It can't be from bling, from brands, from bodybuilding. Your value comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, from being like him with that gentle and quiet spirit. Wait upon God's appraisal as you submit wives to your husbands. But all, honestly, that gentle and quiet spirit needs to be in all of us. 
the creator of the beautiful rose and the sustainer of the breathtaking Milky Way knows what truly beautiful is. Don't go to Instagram to find beauty. God knows what beautiful is. It's a gentle and quiet spirit. It is a wife that is submissive to her husband because she trusts in our good and gentle and great sovereign God. The Lord's eye is the one that matters. So we've seen that, that a wife's submission to her husband is commanded. It displays the transforming power of Jesus Christ. It is beautiful and valuable to God. And last, a wife's submission is evidence of a wife's salvation. A wife's submission is evidence of a wife's salvation. I'm going to read verses 5 and, and, and 6 now, and I'm pretty sure as I read through it, you'll have a couple questions. So I'm going to try to answer some of those questions first, and then we'll get back to the preaching portion, okay? So verses 5 and 6 here. So, or, or, or I'll pick up at, uh, at verse 4. Let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. And we suddenly go Old Testament. Okay, so there's probably two questions that pop out to you, and the first one is more of a curious one. In, in the beginning of verse 5, so who are these holy women of former times? And the text doesn't specify, but a good guess would be that these are the wives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Sarah, the wife of Abraham, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, and unfortunately, Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob. And that was in God's sovereign plan. Peter describes these women as those who hoped in God. The wives of the patriarchs waited on God's promises. You can imagine these women hoping in God as their husbands led them on these nomadic journeys through the desert as they wait for this promised land that they're someday going to get. And as they travel through the desert, having to break down camp and pitch it again, struggling with problems of, of fertility, without owning any land, without the protection of walls in a city, led by men who believed in God, who hoped in God, but were honestly often a wreck. These men made some horrible decisions. And that was, their lot was to be submissive, I mean, a lot with someone else. That just happened. But their lot was to follow these husbands. Hebrews 11, verses 13 and 16 describes them. And what's neat, it says all these. But in verse 11, it describes Sarah. Sarah's included in these all these. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And, if they, and indeed, if they'd been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is true of all those who are waiting for God to fulfill his promises. We are strangers and aliens. We are longing for the new heaven and the new earth. We are longing for our Lord Jesus Christ to return. And we are those who hope in God. And so Peter references back to these women who are wandering around. And honestly, their husbands don't look great. Wandering around in, their, in the desert. Sometimes going to Egypt where their husbands would say, not my wife. These women hoped in God. And Peter says, for in this way, uh, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. That was their beauty. They submitted to their husbands. They had that gentle and quiet spirit. In verse 6, we're going to come to another question here. When did Sarah obey Abraham, calling him Lord? Now, the real pressing question is, maybe do you have to call your husband Lord? And no, you don't. Abraham and Sarah did not have a perfect marriage. There's a time when Abraham obeyed Sarah instead of the Lord. In Genesis 16, 2, you can see how rough of a marriage this is. Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. And that word listen can be translated obeyed. There's also the time when Abraham asked Sarah to lie about being his wife. Genesis 12, verses 11 and 13. It came about when Abraham came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. He's not talking about internal beauty there. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. I love reading about Abraham and Sarah. These are the heroes of the faith. And what? I mean, honestly, this gives us so much hope. The Lord Jesus Christ is transforming us. Like them, we continue in faith. We are those who believe we are the children of Abraham. And we'll see, wives, you are the children of Sarah. Being a Christian is messy. We're going to spend time repenting. We're going to do some very foolish, dishonoring things. But the story of our lives is still going to be one of faith. That's not in my notes. So we have to hypothesize a little. What is Peter referring to? And, and, and I wanted to bring that out because their marriage was messy. So what is he referring to when in verse 6 he says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And there's only one time in Scripture when Abraham calls Sarai Lord. It's in Genesis 18. I'm going to start at verse 9. So this describes when the Lord Jesus, when, when, when God the Son takes on the shape of a man with two angels and comes, and comes to Abraham. And it says that they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham said, there in the tent. And then he said, the pre-incarnate Lord, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. This is the one they've been waiting for a long time. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. 
Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. At this point, Abraham was 100 or, or, or nearly, and Sarah was 90. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? Is this really going to happen now? And the Lord said to Abraham, overhearing, and it says Yahweh there, Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah will, will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid, and he said, no, but you did laugh. Right. So this is not maybe the best example of obedience ever, right? But notice here, in the midst of this, this almost humorous dialogue between Sarah hiding in a tent, overhearing this conversation, laughing out loud, Yahweh, God the Son, talking to Abraham, and then Sarah, promising that they're going to have this child. In the midst of this, in the midst of this, Sarah says, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. And it's really a, a, a sweet little window into their lives. Sarah respected Abraham even when she was doubting God himself. Right? She still referred to him as her Lord. She loved her husband. Sarah further shows obedience in this episode as Abraham and Sarah conceive a child, though 90 and 100 years old. That would, I imagine that would take obedience. Hebrews 11, verse 11 says, By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Neither Abraham or Sarah's faith was perfect, but they were both examples of faith Faith which believes and faith which obeys. Sarah followed her husband in the desert without children, without land, and even after Abraham's many foolish decisions, still thought of her husband as her Lord. Now, Peter's application is not that wives call their husbands Lord, so don't, don't get any ideas, husbands. That would not be culturally appropriate now as it was then. Peter's focus is how women like Sarah adorned themselves. Now, physically, the Bible does tell us that Sarah was a beautiful woman. Rebecca was very beautiful, and Rachel was beautiful of form and face. But Peter doesn't praise their outward appearance. Instead, he praises how they used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Used to adorn themselves is, the, is in the imperfect tense. It was an ongoing. It was their habit of adorning themselves. They adorn themselves by being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham. And here we do come to a tricky point. Submission does involve obedience. Now, I know that that, 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 that can be a challenging concept. And maybe some of you know from Ephesians 5, 
and, and, and 6, how Paul, Paul uses different words when talking about a wife's submission to her husband and a child's obedience to her father or a slave's obedience to his master. But we also see that, and, 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 and honestly, after doing work in commentaries, most commentaries say that, that really that these are our synonyms. In Ephesians 5.24, we see how closely aligned these words are. But as the church is, in Ephesians 5.24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. It's tough to, to, to make that anything less than obedience, right? Are we supposed to obey our Lord Jesus Christ? We are. We should do it willingly, but we still have to do it. So one, common, one, time, one commentator is trying to uh, help distinguish between the difference between submission and, and obedience. And he says there's obviously a difference between willing, willing, sub, excuse me, willing submission and imposed obedience, right? A master could force their slave to obey. A parent has to force their child to obey. It's not, it's not submission when we have to do that, right? There's obviously a difference between willing submission and imposed obedience. Never in Scripture is a husband called to force his wife to obey. But Andrew Lincoln continues, but hardly a major distinction between voluntary subordination and voluntary obedience, right? Voluntary obedience and voluntary submission are synonyms. And then Andrew Lincoln points to 1 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6 to show this. Submission of wives to husbands and obedience of wives to husbands are explicitly par paralleled. Excuse me. And several commentators point to 1 Peter 3, 5 and 6 to show how these two terms work so closely together that when Peter says, Sub submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham. This is how women adorn themselves. Submission is demonstrated through a heart of obedience, willing to do what their husbands ask. Jesus was submissive to God the Father. And we saw this on Good Friday. My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, not yet as I will, but as you will. That is the heart of submission there. Father, I'm going to do what you say. But Scripture has no problem, even though Jesus was being submissive, describing Jesus' submission as obedience. Philippians 2, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 8, looks back to, to the Garden of Eden. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Jesus demonstrated his obedience with that submissive heart. The Father never forced Jesus to obey. Jesus submitted willingly, willingly obeying his Father. And that's how godly women demonstrate their submission to their husbands. Their beauty is their obedience. Again, that is not to say a husband ever forces his wife to obey. It's just these are synonyms in Scripture for good reason. So what is the source of the submission? Where do these holy women, how can they obey their often foolish husbands? They hoped in God. We see that in verse 5. 
For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God. Submission is made possible through faith, through confidence in God's character, through confidence in God's word, by believing God's promises. The confidence of these holy women was not their husband's righteousness. It wasn't their husband's wisdom. It wasn't the, how spiritual their husbands were. Although these men could be examples of faith despite obvious sin. But instead of hoping in their husbands, these women hoped in God. Not just in the outcome of their husband's leading. They hoped in God himself. So wives, being submissive to your husbands is going to require you to anchor your hope in God himself. You have to believe that God is sovereign in bringing you into your marriage, which will last your life. Your God is sovereign in your husband's spiritual health. Your God is sovereign in the life circumstances that made him the leader he is today, whether a good leader or a bad leader. Your God is sovereign in the outcome of, his, of your husband's decisions. Your hope is not your husband, but your Lord. So Peter's encouragement to be submissive to, to, to wives, he continues in verse 6. And you have become your children, her children, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You, you've become her children. This gets us to our point. A wife's submission is evidence of her salvation. Her children is another way to describe women saved. You are Sarah's spiritual descendants. You are her daughters. You're part of that chosen race. You're part of that holy nation. And he gives two different evidences of their salvation here. The first evidence is doing right, it says in verse 6. And you have become her children. Now, Peter's not telling them how they become her children. He's saying this is evidence of having become Sarah's children. It's by doing right. If you do what is right. And in the context here, doing what's right is submitting to your husbands. Of course, that's not the only thing that you do that, that is right. But it is submitting to your husbands. It's doing good, and that's encouraging to you. Regardless of what your husband is asking of you, this is doing right unless it is doing wrong. And it's not doing right. If it goes against God's law, don't do it. But if it's within the context of Scripture, doing your husband's will is doing right. Seeking to implement your husband's plan for the family, whether that's in finances or health or training the children, you do that to the best of your ability, it's doing what is right. And that's evidence that you are Sarah's child. And that's what Peter wants to encourage them with. You are saved. You're part of that holy nation, that chosen race, and you demonstrate that. The second evidence of having become Sarah's children is not being frightened. It says at the end, without being frightened by any fear, any fear, and that word fear there is, it's, it's not being frightened by any terror. That's especially true of a woman who's married to a husband who doesn't know the Lord, particularly in the ancient world where you would be shaming your husband by not worshiping their God. In the ancient world, retaliation, physical retaliation from your husband was a real, a real possibility, and the law wouldn't protect them in the same way it does now. But submission to any man, not just a lost man, requires trusting God. 
A daughter of Sarah fears more disobeying the Lord than the consequences of her husband's leading. There's something more important here. What does the Lord think of this? Wives, I trust by God's grace you're encouraged that you are children of Sarah because of the evidence in your life. Wives, have you demonstrated your submission to the Lord by your committed, trusting submission to your husband, by your hoping in God submission? Has your belief in the tremendous good news of the gospel liberated you from the fear of submitting to your husband? That's what the good news of the gospel does. It frees us to look at God's commands as good commands. We don't have to fear obeying. When Peter called the believers to excellent behavior, he did aware so that submitting is hard. Submitting is difficult. Peter himself had submitted under unjust human institutions. He'd been beaten and put in prison. But yet Peter called for submission to the government. Peter had surely seen the cruel treatment of many slaves. And yet Peter called for the submission of slaves to their masters. And no doubt, Peter had done a lot of marriage counseling. He had seen husbands being loving and foolish. He had seen husbands who even were harsh and wicked. But Peter still called for the submission of wives to their husbands. Peter knew that this was difficult. But Peter was also aware of the internal conflict that we face. It's not just external, it's internal. That our flesh does not want to submit. 1 Peter 2 verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Our, our desire not to submit in any of those fears wages war against our soul. It wants to destroy us. So wives, you face that conflict today. And this is what I love thinking about 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Verses are understanding, uh, influences our understanding of verse 7. We as husbands need to understand this is hard for you. That, that, that your flesh is fighting against this. That is part of the curse. In Genesis 3, 3 16. That a woman's desire, her, and, and, it's, and, and it's not a desire for her husband in a physical way, but her desire is to her husband, to rule her husband, and her husband rules in response. It's put into conflict with our spouses. So in your flesh, you're still under the influence of that curse of Eve. You desire to have your way and to be the head of your home. But in Christ, you're more than that. In Christ, you're a daughter of Sarah. In Christ, you are a new creature. And you have a new desire to fulfill your purpose as a helper suitable to him. Submitting to him in everything as a church submits to Christ. Wives, your submission to your husbands is the end of this drama that's as long as creation itself. It's a drama that started when Adam and Eve sinned. And we have to ask ourselves, who is going to restore this union this, 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 this working relationship between husband and wife. Who has that kind of power to undo a curse thousands of years old? The Lord Jesus Christ has that power. 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus, Peter talked about this in the previous paragraph. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. And that is true of you, wives in the Lord Jesus Christ, here today. You have been healed through Jesus Christ. Because he died, you can die to sin and live to righteousness. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, you can put to death the desire you have to have your way in the home. You can glorify through the Lord Jesus Christ, through your union with him, through faith. You can glorify him with that gentle and quiet spirit like he had. See, the clock is ticking on our marriages. Time is running out. The curtain is being drawn. So wives, now is the time to make the most of your marriage by dying to sin and living to righteousness. Now is the time to put on display the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now is the time to make the most out of marriage so that those who observe your good deeds, and let's not forget our little ones in our homes, may glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray together and pray for our wives who have this high calling. Father, we are very humbled as we come to your word. And uh, in, in today's world, there's not many messages that are more countercultural. And I'm so thankful for uh, the women uh, here, Lord. And I see many who, who are eager to hear your word, who desire to be submissive in their homes to their husbands, and who know they can't do that without the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, what we're talking about here, Father, is the miracle that you do. Lord, the miracle, we praise you, Father, that it is more than regeneration. It's more than new desires, but a, a new ability, and that you transform us, Lord. So, Father, we rejoice in, 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 in all of us, Lord. Really, submission is about all of us, Lord. Becoming submissive to human institutions, becoming submissive in, in, in all authority relationships. But particularly today, Lord, we rejoice in you exalting the beauty of your son and the power of your son as you are transforming our wives. And so we rejoice in that, Lord. Christ reigns. And we do pray that, that you help them. Help them, uh, Lord, even uh, to have that gentle and quiet spirit. Help them not to be confused. And I think about our younger women here. Lord, not to be confused in, the, in, the, in this age where, where there's such disgusting things said about what beauty is. Lord, that there would not be confusion, Lord. There, there, there would not be confusion even about what real heroes are. But that they would see the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Lord, so, so, so there, there is there is a battle going, and so we need your help, Lord. And I pray that you would let the beauty of your word and of your way, the beauty of your son be seen by what you're accomplishing here. Lord, it is such a testimony to the lost world that things are different in your church. So please, Lord God, uh, uh, show that difference. Strengthen our wives, Lord. I pray that you would uh, be, be building in the minds of um, our, our, our unmarrieds here who would, who would want to be, Lord, what the biblical role is, Lord. And Father, we, we are sympathetic too, Lord. And even as we be gone, uh, uh, 
even as we began this morning. Uh, there, there are maybe those here this morning who would long to be married and aren't. And so I do pray that uh, this message would, that they would see everything that does apply to them, even as we all do. But that, uh, Lord, we ask if it pleases you that you do bring them a, a godly husband who they could uh, be happy to, to submit to. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We are very needy, and we pray that you glorify yourself, glorify your son. In Jesus' name, amen.